We can open your Bibles this morning to Daniel chapter 2. We'll be turning to one of my favorite passages in a book I've been dwelling on recently. And Daniel 2 has such a clear and powerful message for really any generation on what the future holds. And that seems to be the question on the mind of most these days. We're still meeting remotely because of the COVID-19 quarantine, although we hope these circumstances end very soon. Even when they do, what will happen next? This outbreak has rattled everyone's cages and, and made a lot of people unsettled. People are scared. They're scared of viruses. They're scared of government. They're scared of economic depression. They're scared of the future. And they're wondering, how will this outbreak change things? What will things be like on the other side of this thing? How bad might things get? What does the future hold? And what happens next? Unfortunately, unless you're a prophet, you're not going to get any answers. The future is like a wall of fog. You just can't see through it. You can just see enough to take the next step, and that's it. So if you can't find some way to live with uncertainty, your life is constantly going to be filled with worry and fear, and that sounds like an exhausting way to live. As Christians, though, we're able to live with confidence despite some future uncertainty because we know and trust that God's in control. You know, as the saying goes, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. God does. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's working out all of human history for his kingdom and his glory. You just need to trust his promises. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ, the Son, the Savior. And then even though you don't know what the road ahead brings, you can walk with confidence, assurance, and endurance. And that's what God wants from us anyway. Now, that being said, that saying is not entirely true. I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. Actually, we we do know a thing or two about what the future holds because God has revealed it to us. God's told us not everything, not what's going to happen in your individual life, not what's going to happen in American history. We still can't see very far ahead of us on this foggy road. But he has revealed what the end of the road holds. Looks like there's, there's a mountain there. It sticks up above the fog. It's God's kingdom. He's told us what's at the end of the road, where this road we're on is, is headed. And largely to bolster our confidence, our assurance, and then our endurance, God has told us plenty about the end, the very end, when his kingdom comes. And whether or not that end will come in your lifetime That knowledge of of the final future is meant to carry you through times of present uncertainty with some insurance. Now, as you trust God with each step, you can say with confidence, I know that he will safely deliver me to his heavenly kingdom. And I know that one day his kingdom will come on earth. That day might be a ways off. We can't really tell, but... So long as we stay the course, no matter what the road brings, we're assured it's going to end up with God's glory. And for those in Christ, us partaking in it. And that should be enough for us. You see, God gives us a complete certainty about the long-term future. And that's meant to carry us through all all short-term uncertainty. And so right now, you might be facing some very serious short-term uncertainty. You might be one of those who is fearing and worrying a lot over what's going to happen next in our country and in our world. 
And I can't give you any answers or hope or certainty about the present. I mean, your worst fears might all come true. I don't know. But I can give you some hope and some answers and some certainty for the, the final future. And I can tell you that in the end, and eternally for those in Christ Jesus, there's everlasting peace and security, and blessing, joy, and glory. And God, our Heavenly Father, believes that's enough for us. That's enough information for us to just walk and dwell securely in this life, no matter what comes. That's what you need to be dwelling on right now. As we face more troubled times, you can get some information from the news media or from social media, but you better not be getting your hope from the news media or social media. That would be disastrous. You'd be a mess. You better be getting your hope from God's word. And while the Bible doesn't mention coronavirus, it tells us everything God wants us to know about what happens next, what will happen next in God's timeline for this world. And as you rest on that knowledge, then you'll be empowered to endure and even smile at the future, despite whatever uncertainty you face in the present. And so it sounds then like we could use a little lesson about what God has revealed about the future. And that's precisely what we get in Daniel chapter two. And so our goal this morning is is simple. I want to just survey this entire chapter of the Bible that we may derive encouragement, hope, and confidence, knowing God's ultimate plans for this world. I'll say that again. We're going to study Daniel 2, and our goal is just to derive encouragement, hope, and confidence, knowing God's ultimate plans for this world. Now, before we get into Daniel 2, you need some Basic background on Daniel the person and Daniel the book. The time is around 600 BC. Northern Israel had already been conquered and exiled by the Assyrians. Now, the Babylonians were the superpower and they had asserted their sovereignty over southern Israel or Judah. Now, Judah tried to revolt several times and break away and never really worked out. Each time that the Babylonians would come and basically invade, they would remove Judah's king and set up one of their own kings or a king of their choosing whom they could control. And each time they would also take captive some of the people. This happened three times, actually. There were three deportations of Judah. The third time, though, the Babylonians had enough. The armies of Nebuchadnezzar invaded in 586 B.C., and they laid waste to Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. And the remaining majority of people were taken captive. And that was the end of Israel as any form of a nation, a sovereign nation. Now, where does Daniel fit into this? Daniel was actually among the first people exiled from Judah way back in 605 BC. That's 20 years before the temple was destroyed. Daniel was just a teenager at the time, likely around 15 years old. But King Nebuchadnezzar had a policy of taking some of the best and brightest youths from conquered peoples, training them in his language, and then pressing them into service in the king's court. Daniel was of a noble family, so he was among those chosen for the king's service. And so off to Babylon he went. 
You can read about this in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel would go on to spend the rest of his life in Babylon. And through God's intervention, though, he quickly rose through the ranks. Daniel served in some of the highest positions in the Babylonian Empire and then later in the Persian Empire. Also, throughout his tenure, Daniel wrote what became the book of Daniel. And Jesus himself affirmed Daniel's authorship of this book. And under God's inspiration, that the writings that Daniel left behind would prove to be some of the most significant and valuable writings for the Jewish people from then on. And why is that? It really gets into the purpose of Daniel. And first, you got to think about the complete identity crisis the Jews were facing. They just lost the Holy Land, all of it, and the temple was destroyed. Now what? What does that mean for them? Are they still God's people? What about God's promises? How could God let this happen? And now they're living under Gentile domination. How are they supposed to live? How are they supposed to worship? What does it even mean to be Jewish anymore? And talk about uncertainty over the future. The Jews were facing a complete paradigm shift in what it meant to be Jewish. But God spoke through Daniel and and other prophets to give his people a message of hope during such trying times. And yes, Israel's time as a sovereign nation was over. That was part of God's discipline on them for their immorality, idolatry, and unbelief. But in Daniel and the rest of the prophets, God assures them that they're still his chosen people. He's not forgotten those unconditional promises he made to their fathers. And God has plans to usher in his kingdom on the earth. And those plans still include a place for national Israel. One day in God's kingdom, under God's king, Israel would be restored. And so through Daniel and the prophets, uh, the remnant of Israel was left to hope in one thing. God's coming kingdom and his king, the Messiah. Their hope now was, was just for this kingdom. However, in Daniel especially, God was revealing that his plans for his kingdom were were much bigger than the Jews had come to anticipate. His kingdom does not merely extend to Palestine, but actually the whole world. And this kingdom is not merely filled with Israelites, but the redeemed from all the nations, even Gentiles. And the king of this kingdom is not merely going to be a human king, but he's going to be a perfect, everlasting, divine king of righteousness. Clearly, God had some big plans, and he was giving Israel and all of his people hope by revealing those plans. Israel had lost her national sovereignty. The time of the Gentiles had begun, and Israel was going to know oppression and uncertainty, persecution, and exile. And the same would pretty much be true for all of God's people and and all of the nations from then on, in most generations. Most of the time, God's people live as the minority, living in a hostile world that's ruled by sin. But the hope Daniel gives to all believers is that this world will not be this way forever. Sin, evil, and unrighteousness will not rule this world 
forever. Rather, a day will come when, when God will put an end to the reign of sin on the earth and with it, the kingdoms of man. And in its place, he'll establish his own kingdom of everlasting righteousness. And there, his people will dwell with his king in perfect peace forever. And that day is coming. In fact, by God's sovereignty, he's working in and through all the nations to bring about that day, to lead to that day. That day may not be for another thousand years. We don't know. But the faithful are given all the hope they need in that day to endure all the hardships of this life and this present age. And so in all, the message of Daniel is that God is sovereign over all the affairs of mankind. He's sovereign over all nations. He rules the nations. He directs them according to his will. And that culminates in his kingdom led by his king. That is Israel's true hope. That's our true hope as well. The coming king and kingdom is the foundation of our assurance and then endurance. Now in Daniel, the way God communicates this hope of his coming kingdom to his people is through a series of of sweeping prophetic pictures, you might say, of human history. God shows his sovereignty by declaring the end from the beginning. And he details in stunning accuracy the, the coming history of the kingdoms of the world. And they lead up to the, the final kingdom and then his kingdom. It is this vision of the future that gives us, too, all the hope we need to endure our own difficult times. Because, again, even though that the near future for us is uncertain, the far future, the, the ultimate future, is fixed. And God's kingdom comes. That's what we need to hear this morning. We have enough, I think, now to get into Daniel 2. We have a lot to cover. So you're going to have to come with me pretty fast. All of Daniel 2. But here we find the first and really the most sweeping account of the future from God. This gives us the broadest picture of God's plans for the future. But this also forms the broadest basis of our hope. So it's a good place to start. And that's what we'll do. Let's look at Daniel 2 now. Kind of a running commentary. Let's get through. We're trying to get to the end. Honestly, that's where our our attention will be. But let's get through these first verses uh, quickly. Look at verse now 1. Okay, Daniel 2 verse 1. It says, Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. And his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Daniel 2 begins with the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. He has a troubling dream. And for some reason, he believed this was no ordinary dream. But this was so disturbing, he thought it had to be revelation from the gods. It must have been as as vivid as reality. So he calls on his wise men to interpret the dream. Verse 2, And the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. To tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. Four groups of so-called wise men. Stood before the king. And these guys dove deep into the, uh, into the occult. And sorcery. And astrology. They believed they were able to channel revelation from the gods. 
And so back then, this is who you'd call if you had a wild dream. Verse 3, the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants and we will declare the interpretation. So far, this is standard practice. Like, you tell us the dream, we'll tell you the interpretation. They had a nice racket going on there. But Nebuchadnezzar was so disturbed by this dream, he wasn't going to go for that. They had to tell him the dream first. Verse 5, the king replied to the Chaldeans, The command for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation... You will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. That escalated real quick. I mean, the king's essentially demanding supernatural proof that their interpretation really is of the God's. Because after all, you can just make something up, and who's to say you're wrong? It's, it's an interpretation. But if they supplied the dream itself, that would be sufficient proof that man, they really were speaking from the gods. They really had a channel to divine revelation. But how do you think they're going to respond to this, though? Verse 7, they answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command for me is firm, that if you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. These wise men are out of options, and they know it. They know their occult practices don't have that much power. The kings called their bluff, and so they're forced to confess their inability. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult. There's no one else who could declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. These wise men own up to their own limitations. No man could declare such a thing. This requires divine knowledge. You realize in saying this, however, they're actually confessing the bankruptcy of their own dark arts. You know, they, they might have some power. If so, it would come from the demons, but they have no true connection to actual revelation from God himself. They do not speak to or hear from God. Verse 12, because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain. And they look for Daniel and his friends to kill them. 
You know, Daniel was no occultist, but he was lumped in with these wise men who counseled the king. But Nebuchadnezzar was ready to be done with the whole bunch. And this spells you know, real trouble for Daniel and his friends. Like, what, what are they to do? How can they escape this death sentence? Look at verse 14. It says, Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, For what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, isn't this interesting? To be sure, Daniel believes what the Chaldeans said, that no man could declare this dream and its interpretation. And that's true. But, but God can. God who's in heaven can reveal it. And Daniel's God, the only true God, is a compassionate God who hears the prayers of his people. So Daniel and his friends do the only thing they, they could do and should do. They simply beseech their God in prayer to have compassion on them and, and reveal this dream to them. And look, even if this was the end of the story, even if God did not answer and Daniel was killed, this was still the right thing to do. And God is merciful and compassionate. He cares for his people. So you should go to him in prayer with all of your troubles. There's already a good little side lesson to learn here. That you too should be going to God with all of your fears, worries, and troubles. You know, sadly, I fear all too many Christians run to the world, even the occult, for answers in life. Astrologers, palm readers, horoscopes, tarot cards. The occult is still out there and people still turn to it for supposed divine guidance. But far be it from any Christian to do this. I mean, you have access to the throne of the true God in prayer. Why would you ever turn anywhere else for hope, help, or guidance? And in this case, God would answer to deliver Daniel. Let's look at verse 19. <clears throat> then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you've made known to me what we requested of you. For you've made known to us the king's matter. And already, I mean, what, what precious and powerful words of praise Daniel offers up to God. And, and no, he's not been delivered yet. 
He just had a dream himself and he knew it came from God. And his first reaction is not to run off and save his skin. His first reaction is to sit there and just pause and thank and praise God for this deliverance. Indeed, Daniel, just a man, he has no special powers, but there is a sovereign God in heaven who rules over all, who has all wisdom. He can give it to men as he pleases. He can reveal the things hidden in the darkness. And this is what God has done for Daniel. And this revelation will prove to be their salvation. And now we're going fast. We're we're getting there. Let's keep going. Verse 24. It says, Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and spoke to him as follows. Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows. I found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel is rushed into the king's presence. You get the impression that it's just in the nick of time that the wise men were were about to all be slaughtered. But Daniel has the interpretation. He's going to give it. But notice, he takes all of of the spotlight and the glory off of himself. He's not taking any credit for this. Rather, he makes it clear that the one and only God in heaven has revealed this to him. And that too is powerful. Look, Look at what he says to the king before he gets to the dream. Verse 27. Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future. And he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. You see how Daniel makes crystal clear that this is all of God and from God. God alone is the revealer of mysteries. God alone is the source of truth and wisdom. And in God's wisdom, for his purposes, he's revealed his plans about the future to this pagan Babylonian king. Now think about that. God has some purposes in that, by the way. But we too are blessed because this dream and its interpretation were recorded in scripture for for our benefit as well. So, finally, we can get to the dream. What's the dream? Yeah, a lot of buildup to the dream, but we finally get to hear it. Now, already in verse 28, we're told that God was making known to Nebuchadnezzar what would take place when? In the latter days. Literally, it says the end of days. So, whatever the details, this dream is going to take us to the very end 
of human history. So let's, let's find out about it now. Finally, verse 31, the dream. Daniel says, you, O king, were looking, and behold, there is a single great statue. That statue was large and of extraordinary splendor. It was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue is made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time. It became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And here we finally get to hear Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And it's, it's a wild dream, but it's, in a sense, also straightforward. He sees this massive statue of extraordinary splendor. I mean, I, I, we don't know the actual size. I picture something like bigger than the Statue of Liberty, which back then would have been mind-blowing, a statue that big. But the statue is made of all these different metals from the head down to the toes. It looks formidable, the statue, until, of course, the stone shows up out of nowhere and just obliterates the statue. Not a trace is left. Instead, all that's left in its place is this stone, which then turns into a mountain that fills the whole earth. So that's it. That's, that's the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Now listen, the, the vast majority, if not all of our dreams, are not revelatory. Meaning, they don't mean anything. They contain no messages from God. But it is true that on occasion, on a select occasion, God would reveal himself to people through dreams and visions. And clearly, something in this dream disturbed Nebuchadnezzar so much that he was going to kill all the wise men if they couldn't tell him what it meant. But thankfully, Daniel not only tells us the dream, but gives its interpretation. Because in this case, this dream actually did come from God. And so now we can finally get into the interpretation. We too wonder, it seems like a big deal. Like, what does it mean? What is God revealing about the future, about these latter days in this dream? Well, let's find out. Daniel has this divine interpretation. It starts in verse 36. He goes on to say, this was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So first, Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon were represented by the head of gold in this statue. Their kingdom was full of, of splendor and majesty. But contrary to their own belief, that, that did not come about by their own might. Rather, the God of heaven bestowed such power upon them for his purposes. You see in verse 38, God caused Nebuchadnezzar to rule over all. 
I mean, you need to realize God uses kings and nations like tiny little instruments in his hands to bring about his larger purposes. He raises them up and then he takes them out. Indeed, Babylon would not last. This head of gold wouldn't last. It would be replaced by another kingdom. That's verse 39. He says, after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you than another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Two more kingdoms will come after the Babylonians, each conquering the kingdom before it, each ruling the known world. And this refers to none other than the Persian Empire and then the Greek Empire thereafter. But next comes a fourth kingdom of unparalleled strength. It's a kingdom of iron. Verse 40, he says, then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron. And as much as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And these legs of iron represent, of course, the Roman Empire. And historically very fitting as Rome became associated with its iron legions. They were an unstoppable force crushing the known ancient world. But we're not quite done because after the legs of iron come the feet. But the feet are rather different in this statue. He says in verse 41, In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron. Inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay, as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery. So some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. So what we see here is some transition in this last kingdom, Rome. Rome comes to an end and it's replaced by a similar but different kingdom. What's the nature of this final kingdom in the statue? It's represented by feet and toes, partly of iron, partly of clay. And this signifies a divided kingdom. Part of the kingdom will have the strength of ancient Rome, but part of the kingdom will be weak like clay. These two will not fully combine with one another, leaving the kingdom vulnerable. Now more can be said about this last kingdom. We'll come back to it in a minute. But just to to wrap up this interpretation, look what he says in verse 44. After this, verse 44, he says, In those days, or rather, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. So here we see something completely new. Here comes this, this final kingdom. This is the kingdom of God. God himself, after all these things, he's going to establish his kingdom on earth and it will never be destroyed. Contrary to all the kingdoms of the statue, it will never come to an end. Every kingdom and king meets its demise, but God's kingdom will never be conquered. It will put an end to all the kingdoms of man, but itself, it will endure forever. And then Daniel adds 
to conclude, to finish the interpretation, verse 45. He says, inasmuch as he saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. We see how this last kingdom, God's kingdom, is represented by stone. You'll notice God's kingdom is not a part of the statue, which refers to the kingdoms of men. These kingdoms are all identified with refined metals, the work of man's hands. But God's kingdom is not the work of man. It does not come from man. It's the work of God. It's like a stone cut from a mountain without hands. No human agency will bring about God's kingdom. And when it comes, like he said back in verse 35, not a single trace of the previous kingdoms of man will be found. Their power will be gone. God's kingdom will come and put an end to the sinful rule of man on the earth. This stone will obliterate the statue, starting with the feet. And then it will turn, it's the stone itself will turn into a mountain that fills the whole earth. And so you see that God's kingdom will come and replace man's kingdoms on the whole earth. And it itself will endure forever. So this is the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and its interpretation. Now, when Daniel was telling this, everything he said was still future. The year was, again, around 600 BC. But as we read this today, from our perspective, almost everything here is now in the past. From our perspective, most of this vision and its interpretation has been literally fulfilled in history. It's appropriate to identify Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome as the parts of this statue, these kingdoms that came. But the thing is that that last kingdom, the the feet, the toes, the last kingdom of iron and clay, that gives us some pause because that alone does not have a historical parallel. Now, we would expect some 10-nation kingdom to conquer Rome, which would itself then be replaced by God's kingdom. But but that has not happened yet. We've not seen that. God's kingdom is not ruling on the whole earth. The kingdoms of man still progress in unchecked sin and rebellion. They've not been turned to dust by any stretch of the imagination. But that hasn't happened yet. So this, this final kingdom of man, followed by the kingdom of God, are they seem to be still future. That makes sense, though, because remember, Daniel was originally giving the king a vision of what? Verse 28, the end of days. This vision ends with the literal end of days. This is how history will end, and we're not not there yet. Also, you know, back in verse 44, it's only in the days of those kings, the kings of the ten toes, it's only in those days that God will usher in his kingdom. And we're led to believe those days are still future. And time will tell when they come. As we wonder about our own future, though, it behooves us to just kind of inquire about that last kingdom of the statue. What is that kingdom? What's it all about? What's it like? What is it? 
I can only summarize for time, but I want to give you some, some answers. You know, many years later, God himself would give Daniel himself a dream. Daniel would get his own nighttime vision. He had a dream of four beasts, which represented the same four kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. This dream was meant to parallel Nebuchadnezzar's dream. However, Daniel's dream added more information. You can find all this now in Daniel 7, which we won't go to. You can do on your own time, but I'll summarize. Markedly though, Daniel's dream tells us a lot more about that fourth kingdom, which changes shape and is different from all the rest. And it's, it's that later dream that enables us to come back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2 and, and identify things more clearly. So I'll say in short, you know, with Daniel 2, that the feet and the toes, they do represent a yet future kingdom, which we can liken to the Roman Empire. Many would call it a, a revived Roman Empire. Since some of the iron is still present, this empire will have world domination, but it will be divided. Notable, though, are these ten toes. You know, in Daniel 7, this kingdom is paralleled to a beast that has ten horns. And those are explicitly said to refer to ten kings. So this kingdom, this final kingdom, is a confederation of ten kings or ten nations that rule the world. But as Daniel 7 adds, another horn, a little horn, rises up and subdues these ten horns, these 10 nations. This single figure then comes to rule the entire world, uttering great boasts. And spoiler alert, that is the figure we later come to refer to as the Antichrist. But although he does gain a world domination, his time is short. And in those days, in the days of those kings, the son of man returns. To set up his kingdom. I'll read for you Daniel 7 verse 14. Which talks about that time. Speaking of the son of man. It says when he comes. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. There's no doubt that this son of man is that stone cut without hands. And when he comes, he's the one who puts an end to that final kingdom and and erases all the history of the kingdoms of men to establish his own everlasting kingdom of peace and righteousness. And we can say more. Believe it or not, Actually, more details are revealed by Daniel, by the book of Revelation, by Christ himself. But I think what we've seen so far in Daniel 2 suffices for now. And for now, we need to stop and ask, what's the point? You know, Daniel 2 and beyond, why has God told us these things about the future? Why is he telling us what's to come? What's the point? We still don't have all the details and you might feel like you understand none of the details. But even in its simplest form, the point is crystal clear. 
God wins. That's it. That, that's the point. God prevails in the end. In the very end, God's kingdom comes. God puts an end to the kingdoms of man forever. No trace of them will be found. But instead, God himself and his king, the Christ, will reign over his people forever. That's the point. Evil doesn't win. Men united in rebellion against God don't win. Satan doesn't win. The Antichrist doesn't win. God wins through his son. And that son is the real king of kings. And there's just no stopping his coming and his eternal reign. He's this stone cut without hands by divine agency that comes. And when he returns, he will be the one to cut down the Antichrist and all the nations who have united in rebellion against him. He will put an end to them. And there will be no contest. It's not going to be a fair fight that the statue stands no chance against the stone. Now, at this point, I know some of you, you find it you know, fun and intriguing to unravel the, the mysteries of biblical prophecy. You probably want to keep going, maybe another time. But, but we can't ever lose sight of the purpose of this revelation. God told us this for a purpose. And so again, we need to reflect on what, what's the message here. And in all of Daniel, and Daniel 2 especially, the message is clear that God is completely sovereign over all the affairs of this earth. Everything that happens in this world, he's sovereign over it. This is true on the smallest scale. You know, the, he knows the number of hairs on your head. But we see here it's true in the largest scale, national scale, kingdom scale, global scale. Nothing happens on a global scale that God is not sovereign over. Daniel himself confessed this in his prayer of praise. Remember back in verse 21, he said, It's God who changes the times and the epochs. God removes kings and establishes kings. Realize that that's just what God does. He's in control. Nothing happens on a national scale, outside of God's control. You tell me what these verses say, Job twelve twenty three. God makes nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. In Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Proverbs 21, verse 1, the king's heart is like channels of water, in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Or Acts 17, 26. It says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. God has determined from the beginning the borders and the timeline of every nation. That's called sovereignty. God's determined the rise and the fall of every king and every kingdom on earth. Nebuchadnezzar himself would learn this lesson. In Daniel 4, God would humble Nebuchadnezzar and make him realize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. It's so ironic because in Daniel 3, and after hearing this dream, Nebuchadnezzar it just all goes to his head. Instead of realizing, I should probably give honor to the God who gave me this dream, the one true God who revealed this dream. 
But no, it literally goes to Nebuchadnezzar's head. He hears in the, vin- in the vision, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold, remember? And it's no wonder in Daniel chapter 3, you turn the page and right after, what's Nebuchadnezzar do? He builds this massive statue made entirely of gold of himself. He's not just the head of gold. He's, the whole thing is gold. And he commands all people to bow down and worship it. You think he's far gone. He's a wicked king. But no, God would humble him in the next chapter, chapter 4. He would force him to realize, no, you're not that great. Your sovereignty, you have it, but it came from God. He can take it away, and he does. He can give it back. He forces Nebuchadnezzar to realize, no, the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind. He bestows it on whomever he wishes. Nebuchadnezzar comes to know that and believe in the one true God. He even confesses God's sovereignty. If you want to look at Daniel 4, look at what he says in chapter 4, verse 34 and 35. He says, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, he's writing this portion of scripture. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven. My reason returned to me and I blessed the most high. And praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. You hear that? All the inhabitants of the earth, every person, are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? You really get this, in a sense, suffocating picture of God's sovereignty. And I tell you what, if God wasn't good, that'd be terrifying. But thankfully, he's good. He's loving. He's perfect. He's righteous. He's just. There are many implications to this overwhelming picture of God's sovereignty in scripture. And for one... For the wicked, it means there's no escape. It means there's no hope. Those who choose to persist in their rebellion against this God, against his kingdom and his righteousness, are literally doomed. Their end has already been decreed that they will lose. That's terrifying to to come up against a God like this and, and to persist in your rebellion. You have no hope, no chance whatsoever That's something to fear. Who can contend with the Almighty? However, thankfully, for the faithful, for those who follow Jesus Christ as their king, God's sovereignty means for them, there's nothing but hope. God rules the nations. He does so with a plan for the benefit of his people, those who follow his son, It will end well for them. So what's there to fear? That doesn't mean there won't be bad times for God's people in the short term. You know, from Nebuchadnezzar to Nero. God has sovereignly enabled some seriously wicked rulers to have power on earth. That continues to our day, even in our nation. But even that is according to his own plans and purposes. 
those purposes are manifold and they are infinitely beyond our, our comprehension and scope. But we do know this, that all of God's purposes funnel down into one. They all eventually lead to the coming of Christ and his kingdom. And no matter how bad things may get, you can be sure that God is working all this out toward that end. It's all going to contribute toward the end. There's only one end and it's been revealed. The kingdom comes and that's a hope you're supposed to rest in and have confidence in. A lot of people these days are scared. They're scared of disease. They're scared of government. They're scared of oppression. They're scared of depression. They're scared of the future. But as a Christian, you don't need to be. Why not? It's not because dark days won't come. And we wouldn't choose it, but hey, who knows? Our days might lead to a greater suffering for God's people. You know, God has purposes in that too. He has a way to to extract the deepest praise and the most powerful evangelism from his people when they suffer. He'll work that out too. And you know what? It doesn't matter because the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. And speaking of, you don't need to be scared of the future because you know it's coming in the end. Like the end end. Christ comes. Sin ends. God reigns. And there's just no force in existence that can stop that. And this knowledge then gives us all the confidence and assurance we need to bring about our endurance. And that's the only thing you really need to worry about. Whatever comes in the short term, do not fear. God will be with you. He'll preserve you. You just persevere in your faith in Christ. All that matters is that in the end, you find yourself on the side of the stone, not on the side of the statue. And that comes by humbling yourself, putting an end to your own sin and rebellion, and calling out to the Most High God to save you, to have mercy on you. God offers salvation to those who end their rebellion while there's still time. That comes about by by faith in his son, Christ, who came the first time to put an end to sin by dying on the cross for us in our place and rising from the dead. And now he invites people into his everlasting kingdom. But you make sure you enter through that narrow door of faith while there's still time today. Because that time is always short. And his time of coming to judge is always near. For those of you who have done so, though, just continue to do so. Right? Christ, the rock of ages, he's your only hope. Don't fall into the trap of putting any hope in this world, in kings and governors and laws and anything. Yeah, they might give you temporary freedoms and protections. And we'll, we'll take it when we can get it. But our ultimate hope is only found in Christ and his coming. And you need to fix your eyes on him and let that knowledge of what comes next propel your assurance and then your endurance. We need that every day, but especially in dark days. So let us continue to look to Christ now and always. Let's pray. And Father in heaven, we thank you for this word, your word this morning, so 
so true and powerful and, and this display of your sovereign will and your sovereignty. You are the God in heaven, the one true God, the only God. And you make yourself known, your power known by, by declaring the end from the beginning. That gives us a, a large measure of assurance, seeing even in scripture itself, this fulfilled prophecy, the prophecy that has come true. You can take great assurance that your word is true, your promises are true, and you are true. You have revealed the end from the beginning. This world has fallen and, and it will be ruled by sin, by Satan, by death itself in this age until the final age. But even that has been declared and decreed. You, you will not allow in your goodness, in your justice and righteousness, you will not allow sin to mar your creation forever. You have a good and righteous plan to come back to judge the wicked who persist in rebellion, yet to save and, and bless forever those who cry out to you and turn to you. We need to place our hope here in, in the coming king and his kingdom every day. This is, this is our only hope. It's not ever going to be found in things below. But as we've been meditating on recently, we need to set our mind on these things above and look forward to the coming of Christ and what he brings, a kingdom of everlasting righteousness. Purify your people for that day. And in our short term, as fears grow, as our leaders might grow more wicked as, as the days grow darker, we need not fear. We need to endure and we need to trust. We need to, to set our eyes on the end of the race. And even though we can't see the next few steps where the end is sure, that's going to give us all we need to just, to just keep going. That's what you want from us, a sustained faith and endurance. So bring that about from your people. Purify us, sanctify us, and keep us. We can pray that with confidence because you're sovereign. You promise to keep us. Nothing can stop you from keeping us or from that kingdom coming. And so we simply then pray that Lord Jesus would come quickly. In the meantime, help us to be faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.